Uh, if you have your uh, outlines, hopefully that mic's working. Yeah, if you've got your outline, there is an outline in the order of services you might want to pull out. Uh, that will actually be helpful for you to follow along with. Uh, there's also a little fly in there that uh, tells you what's happening this Easter. Uh, today we're looking at celebrating death. On our Easter Sunday, we're looking at treasuring life. Uh, so it's like a two-part uh, church weekend uh, for those of you who are regulars. Uh, if you are new to Grace Point, let me welcome you. I'm huge. I'm one of the pastors here. It is a pleasure to have you join us. Uh, we do hope that our regulars will actually make you feel welcome and that you will actually feel at home uh, in our church community. Uh, let me pray for us uh, as we open up the Bible today. Gracious God, I do want to thank you that you speak in and through your word. We thank you we can celebrate uh, Easter together as a church uh, community, uh, not just ourselves, uh, but with friends and family who have come to join us this Good Friday. Uh, gracious God, we do pray uh, that you might humble us uh, as we pause and take a little bit of time out and pause and to reflect on the meaning of Good Friday and why Jesus died. Uh, we do pray and ask that you might help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, look, it's fair to say that if there was a symbol in popular culture that represents the Christian faith, uh, it would actually be the cross, the crucifix. Uh, and those of you who were here last Sunday will know that I said that the cross or the crucifix isn't just a religious symbol that you see in Orthodox and Catholic churches on stained glass windows. Uh, it's actually also a fashion symbol that's worn in popular culture. Uh, worn by rock stars and celebrities around the neck as earrings, uh, as tattoos for many people, the likes of Rihanna and Justin Bieber, uh, Harry Styles, and even, I said last week, our very own Dan Ho. In fact, I noticed today, if you had a look at Dan when he was up here doing the Bible reading, I actually thought he only had uh, one cross earring, but I realized he had a small one on the left and then a large one on the right, so go check it out after church today. That will actually make him really conscious. But it's strange, isn't it? Because the cross in the Christian faith represents the death of Jesus by crucifixion. Uh, it represents the death of Jesus by Roman execution. Uh, it was a symbol, not just of capital punishment, and capital punishment not just to inflict a very slow and painful death over a couple of days. It was also a symbol of shame and humiliation. Uh, it was designed to publicly humiliate the one being crucified. Stripped naked, your back whipped with a whip of lead and bone to cause maximum trauma, tied and nailed to a wooden beam and left to hang for days, your body exposed to the elements uh, for the public to see and witness, and really it was to humiliate you uh, as you lost control of your bodily function. Uh, as the birds came to peck at the softest parts of your exposed body, your eyes and genital regions, until eventually your body goes into shocks and you die, basically, as your bodily fluids fill your lungs, you die by asphyxiation, and that takes place over a couple of days. And I think it's rather strange, because the hero in Christianity is a man who dies by crucifixion. The end of his life is not marked by the power of conquest, not by a picture of uh, worldly success where he's enthroned uh, with a sword in his hand and a crown on his head. At the end of his life, the throne he ascends is a cross where his hands are actually empty. His hands are outstretched and nailed, beaten, naked, publicly shamed and humiliated. The king that Christians follow is a man who dies by public shaming and execution. 
Now, let's take a step back and pause and think about it. Think about how strange that is. Christian people on Good Friday each year, and it's become a public holiday for uh, many of our cities around the world, each year they celebrate the death of a man who was beaten, stripped naked, and then nailed to a cross, subjected to public humiliation. Now, you've got to pause and think about how strange that is, because it is. It's strange, isn't it, that the hero of the Christian faith is actually a man who dies by crucifixion on a cross, which is what Christian people actually remember on Good Friday. It's odd. Because it's not a symbol of power. It's a symbol of weakness. It's not a symbol of victory. It's a picture of suffering. It's not a symbol of wealth. It's a picture of poverty. It's not a symbol of beauty. It's a picture of humiliation. And what I want to do with you this morning, uh, if you've got, got it in your outlines, is I want to highlight two things about the cross. Not three. It says three, but two things about the cross. Two things about the death of Jesus in the Christian faith that might actually surprise you, especially if you're a visitor here at Grace Point today. It might surprise you, and if you're a regular at Grace Point, that might surprise you too. Or it might be a great reminder for you. Two things about the cross that popular culture just isn't aware of this Good Friday. Two things that make the Christian faith different from every other religious claim and every other secular worldview. Uh, And so here's the first one in your outlines. Number one, the cross of Jesus is the answer to Jesus' claim to be God himself come to forgive sin, right? What makes the claims of Jesus different from everyone else's claim in history? Well, Jesus actually claimed to be God come to forgive sin, What a strange claim. In fact, it's actually a massive claim to make, isn't it? Uh, In John's account, John wrote one of the accounts of the life of Jesus. In John's account of the life of Jesus, Jesus actually says, if you've seen me, you've seen God. As you hear my words, he says, my words are the words of the Father, God in heaven. Uh, In the book of Mark, one of the writers who gives us an account of the life of Jesus, uh, there in Mark's account of the life of Jesus in Mark chapter 2, Uh, A group of people bring their friend to Jesus, a friend who's paralyzed, who cannot move. Uh, They're looking to Jesus to heal their friend. And Jesus responds, firstly, not by healing their friend. Instead, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Rather odd, isn't it? It's not what the paralyzed man is looking for. You know, you go to a doctor with a medical condition, and the doctor looks at you and says, you know, over here, Bernard, imagine you go see Bernard in Campsy Medical Center and, you know, he's got a, he's, you've got a problem, you know, and Bernard looks at you and he says, friend, your sins are forgiven. At that point, you sort of go, well, why am I paying the gap, right? I'm paying the gap. And he's like, that, that's not very helpful, right? I need a script, Dr. C, not your sins are forgiven. But that's what Jesus does. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And it's certainly not what his friends are looking for. And the religious who are listening in on this conversation in Mark chapter 2, they are outraged. And so in Mark chapter 2 verse 7, they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? And so you imagine with me for a moment, right? Because it's rather odd that Jesus actually says that. Uh, So you imagine with me for a moment, uh, Nate over here, um, Nate runs the coffee cart uh, with the team. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes Nate is unhappy about the quality of the coffee beans that he buys. But imagine he gets angry because the coffee today is not up to standards. And he grabs the nearest phone and he smashes it on the ground. And it happens to be my phone. And before I can say anything, Juliana, who's sitting behind him, says, 
pats him on the shoulder and says, Nate, it's all right. Your sins are forgiven. It's all good. Okay? Now, hang on, Juliana, you cannot do that. Because Nate has not broken your mobile phone. He smashed my mobile phone. He's damaged my phone. Right? The victim can forgive Nate, not you. Because he hasn't sinned against you. He's sinned against me. But Jesus comes along, and Jesus comes along, and he says, your sins are forgiven. Not just your sin, but the sins of the whole world. Because in John chapter 1, verse 29, we're told he comes to deal with the sins of the whole world. Now, let me repeat that, because Jesus makes a huge claim, doesn't he? He claims to be God, come to forgive the sins of the world. Now, how is he able to do that? How is Jesus able to offer forgiveness for sin? Well, the cross is the answer. His death by crucifixion is his answer. Jesus himself says that he has come to give his life a ransom for many. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He comes to give his life a ransom for many. He comes, really, to take the place of the guilty. Uh, He comes to take the place of the perpetrator, the wicked, the evil, the transgressor. In other words, Jesus says, I've come to pay the penalty, the cost of the guilty. And that's why he's able to forgive. Jesus, what's happening at the cross, if you've never realized this, Jesus at the cross absorbs the consequences and the cost of all our sin. The only way Juliana can offer Nate forgiveness for breaking my mobile if if Juliana herself absorbs the consequences and the costs of Nate's sin against me. Juliana would have to face my anger, my justice, and then ultimately she would have to pay to buy me a new phone. So this is what actually happens, right? Jesus claims to be God, come to forgive sin, the sin of the world. And the cross is the answer to his claim. Because at the cross, he's paying the penalty for sin, for our sin. He's absorbing the consequences of all our guilt and shame. Now, I don't know whether you realize this. There can actually be no forgiveness without someone paying for it. Without someone actually absorbing the costs of our wrongs, our guilt, our shame. It's true in all of life. Right? You know, some people say, if someone has wronged you, uh, you know, you know if, if, if we've wronged God, God should just overlook it. Well, that's not justice. In fact, it doesn't operate that way in life. Forgiveness is never free because someone has to bear the cost. So I'll let, let me give you an example, right? If someone actually cheated you financially, either you bear the financial costs to forgive them, or they have to repay what's stolen from you. If someone has abused you, either you bear the emotional cost to forgive them, or they have to pay the cost in jail for abusing you. No one in their right mind would say to someone who has been abused, hey, you've been abused, just get over it, just forgive them. No one would say that. Someone has to, be the, has to bear the cost. And so either you bear it and absorb it, or the other person does. Now, this is what Jesus does. Jesus comes claiming to be God, come to forgive the sins of the world. And on the cross, he is paying the penalty... He's taking on himself the consequences and the costs of all our sins, yours and mine. The sins committed against us and the sins we commit against others and all the sins that we commit against God. Now, that is the radical difference between the claims of Jesus and every other religious claim. That's what makes Jesus different from every other 
religious claim. Because no other religion or no other religious claim or person ever claimed to be God come to forgive sin. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in one of his articles, writes, What are we to make of Jesus? And he says, There is no halfway house and no parallel, no equal in other religions. If you had gone to Buddha and asked him, Are you the son of Brahma? He would have said, My son, you are still in the veil of illusion. If you had gone to Socrates and asked, Are you Zeus? He would have laughed at you. If you had gone to Muhammad and asked, Are you Allah? He would have first torn his clothes and then cut your head off. If you had asked Confucius, Are you heaven? I think he would have probably replied, Remarks which are not in accordance with nature are in bad taste. And so, what Lewis is saying is that if you look at the founders of all the major world religions, they all stress the importance of following their teachings, their way. They, they all stress what you must do to find forgiveness, what you must do to atone for your sin, what you must do to find salvation. Now, whatever you make of salvation in all those uh, religious worldviews, right? Release from the cycle of rebirth, maybe, or enlightenment, or heaven, or freedom from guilt, or forgiveness. They all say, and they all say, this is what you must do. They put forward ways that you must work to be saved. And so in Hinduism, you must walk the path of duty and knowledge and devotion. In Buddhism, you must hold to the Four Noble Truths, live the Eightfold Path. In Judaism, you keep the Torah. In Islam, you live by the Five Pillars of Islam. Muhammad would reject the very idea that he could forgive the sins of others. He was only a prophet of Allah. He was not God. He never claimed to be God. Buddha himself would reject the idea that he could negate the effects of bad karma for you or for others. He was only a man seeking enlightenment to be free from the cycle of rebirth. But Jesus actually repeatedly says, I've come as God to forgive your sins, your guilt, your shame. Jesus claimed to actually be the way to salvation, to be free from guilt and shame. And that's why Jesus always draws the focus onto himself. You know, many of you are familiar with John 14, 6. Jesus actually says, not I am one of many ways. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so forgiveness of sin depends really on how you respond to what he does, never what you do. Significant, isn't it? And so, this morning, I want to say to you that there are three possible conclusions when it comes to Jesus. Because Jesus made such a claim, there are only three possible conclusions, okay? It's there in your outline. Here's number one. So, Jesus claimed to be God, able to forgive your sin. And one possibility is that He was lying. He knew He was lying and He was out to deceive, okay? So, that's one possibility. Jesus was a liar. Uh, you have to ask what makes any of Jesus' teaching reliable or trustworthy if he was a liar. The teachings of Jesus are actually grounded in his claims. The basis for his teaching is his claim to be God come to forgive sin. And so Jesus says, forgive how? It's grounded in his claim to be the God who absorbs sin for your enemies and his enemies. When Jesus says, love one another, how? is grounded in his example of what love looks like, how he laid down his life for the undeserving. And so, all the teachings of Jesus are actually grounded in his claim to be God come to forgive sin. You cannot esteem him like his teaching and yet reject his ultimate claim to be God come to forgive sin. But even if he was a liar... 
liars don't normally die for their lies, do they? But Jesus did by crucifixion. So maybe he wasn't a liar. Maybe he was just mentally unstable. He was mentally deluded, believing that he was actually God come to forgive sin. So that's another possibility. So that's possibility number two, isn't it? He was a lunatic. So here's another possible conclusion. Jesus claimed to be God, able to forgive sin, but he was actually mentally unstable. And he willingly went to the cross and died for us because he was unstable. But if Jesus was mentally unstable and out of his mind, then what makes any of Jesus' teaching, what makes his life so incredibly attractive? Right? Because Christians are following the teachings of a dead man, and in fact, Western society and culture is actually built uh, on the values and teachings of someone who was insane. Uh, the historian W.H. Lecky, in his work, The History of European Morals, in other words, uh, what Lecky does is he surveys the history of uh, European morality and values from Augustus to Charlemagne. He writes that the principles of morality that we so enjoy, that the secular enjoy in the West, are largely built on the teachings of Christ. Historian Tom Holland, who is not a Christian, uh, some of you might have heard his podcast, The Rest is History. He, he wrote a book called Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. He confirms that, you know, the Western worlds we know it, the freedoms that we enjoy, the values that we live by, justice, mercy, and compassion, the things we value in science and secularism, even women's rights, even gay rights today, they actually have their roots in the values and the teachings of Jesus. The West is more Christian than it thinks. The West actually owes more to Jesus than it thinks. Uh, the historian Lecky writes, the simple record of three short years of, of his active life has done more to regenerate and to soften humanity than all the disquisition of philosophers and than all the exaltation of the moralist. You see, and so I raise this question, how can Jesus be a great moral teacher, as some people see him, if he was a liar about who he was, or if he was insane because he was willing to die for a lie. Because when you study the teachings of Jesus, do they really sound like the teachings of someone mentally unstable? Again, you, you can't like his teachings, hold them to be true, and then reject his claims if you think he's mentally deluded. Bono, uh, the lead singer of U2, uh, in a 2013 interview on his Christian faith, uh, was quoted as saying that when it comes to Jesus' claim, this is what he says, you don't get off that easily by saying he was a great thinker or a great philosopher or a good teacher or a prophet or even a really nice guy. You just can't get away with just saying that because that's not how Jesus thought of himself. He thought of himself and he made it clear that he was God come to save people from his sins, from your sins, our sins. And so Bono says you're left with this challenge which is Jesus was who he said he was, God, or he was a complete and utter nut job. Not just any kind of nut job with a Messiah complex, the Charlie Manson type delirium. Okay? But there's a third possibility, and it's there in your outline. So here's another possibility. It is possible that Jesus claimed to be God, able to forgive sin, because he really was God and he was actually doing that. That's another possibility, isn't it? I say that because... Normal people don't claim to be God. In fact, if any of you claim to be God, we'd probably lock you up. So maybe, just maybe, there's something different about Jesus. 
And, and like I said, among all the major world religions, you only have one who claim to be God. And that's what makes Jesus unique and different. He's either a liar who is consciously setting out to deceive us, or he was mentally deluded, or he was who he was. God come to forgive sin. See, if Jesus was lying about his claim to be God come to forgive sin, it means that Jesus was not really the great moral teacher Christians and non-Christians make him out to be. He was a deceiver. It means that everything we do here and Sunday after Sunday is actually built on a lie. And Western, the Western world in which we live is really built on the lie and the teachings of a liar. But it's also true if he was deluded. And so, friends, I want to say to you, this is what makes Christianity different. Jesus claims to be God, able to forgive sin. And the cross is the answer to those claims. And that's why, if you've never realized this before, uh, Christianity is more than just a set of teachings you follow. You know, a lot of people think Christianity is just a set of teachings you follow. Well, Christianity is not a moral path to salvation. Christianity is not a legal code to improve your life. Christianity is not a set of laws that you obey to merit forgiveness. Christianity is actually built on the work of a person who claims to be God, whom you trust to forgive your sins. And so here's the second thing about Good Friday that makes Christianity different from every other worldview, religious or secular. The cross of Jesus tells us that the Christian faith operates on the principle of grace, not works. Do you hear that? The Christian faith operates on the principle of grace and not works. The cross tells us that. And I've already alluded to, the, to this. Christian people believe that on the cross, someone else died to pay for their sins. Jesus Christ dying on a cross is actually a picture of God's grace. Let me tell you why. Because God makes no demands that we pay for our own sin. God doesn't say, this is what you must do to make up for your failure in life. This is what you must do to atone for your guilt. This is what you must do to make things right with me. Let me lay down the moral path you must take to make amends for your past. No, no, no. Grace says you are undeserving, but I'll pay for your sin. I'll make up for your failure. I'll atone for your guilt. I'll take the judgment for your sin. And again, this is what sets the Christian faith apart from every other religious or secular worldview. In fact, the cross of Jesus, if you pause to think about it, it's much more attractive as a worldview than religion and secularism. Let me tell you why. Some of you have heard me say this before. Religion and secularism always operates on the principle of work, work that you do. Functionally, uh, you might not realize this, but religion and secularism are not very different. I mean no offense, but you might not be religious. You might consider yourself a secular person who believes in nothing. But religion and secularism have two things in common. Two th key things in common. Religion and secularism are functionally, they are looking for some form of salvation in life. And salvation in religion and secularism are both dependent on the works of those who follow them, those who are followers of religion, those who are followers of secularism. Salvation and religion and secularism are both built on the strength and the merit and attractiveness and the works of the follower, right? So pause with me for a moment and consider secularism. Maybe you're someone who doesn't believe in God and a friend has brought you today. Does secularism believe in salvation? Of course it does. 
functionally, everyone believes in salvation. Because salvation is nothing more than what you live for to help you escape your circumstance. Salvation is nothing more than the things you pursue in life that makes your life better. Freedom from poverty, security for the future, to save you from some hardship on our happiness, to give you happiness in life, to give you security, to make your life better. Uh, and so, everyone is looking for salvation in life, both the religious and the person who is a secular person. That's the reason why we live for things. Everyone here, we live for things, why we pursue things, why we work so hard, giving our lives to something. And so, we spend our lives constantly giving our lives to something because we want salvation. The author, uh, David Foster Wallace, uh, in his book, Infinite Jest, writes, we are all dying, he says, to give our lives away to something. God, Satan, politics, grammar, topology. And he says, the object of what we give our lives to, he writes, seems incidental to this will that we have in our lives to give our lives to something. Why? Because later on, David Foster Wallace, by the way, he's not a Christian, will go on to say, that everyone is a worshiper of something in life. Why? Because everyone's looking for salvation, religious or secular. We just use different terms, and we look for it in different places. Because the secular looks for it in self-realization, in self-fulfillment, in people, in work, and money, and entertainment. The list is endless. Now, what does that mean? It means that whether you're a religious person looking to find salvation in God, or a secular person you're also looking to find salvation in something. Self-realization, self-fulfillment, maybe your work, maybe in that ultimate relationship, in your accomplishments, your career, or maybe in getting through something in your life right now, right? Escaping poverty, having some form of security. In short, functionally, everyone in this room is looking for salvation. And secularism says you can save yourself by your own effort, by your own intellect, by your own work, if you're strong enough, you're smart enough, you're resourceful enough. Secularism says, there is no God. We live in a closed universe. Nature is all there is, so you must save yourself. Or let me be more specific. The secular says, salvation only belongs to the strong, the attractive, the smart, the resourceful. It's a dog-eat-dog world. You make sure you're the bigger dog. Secularism says you have to be the bigger dog in the workplace, in your relationships, in your studies, in life. Sell yourself. That's the principle of natural selection in nature. Evolution is weeding out those who deserve to be saved and those who don't deserve to be saved. Which is why in the secular world, those of you who are workers, you know this, it only favors, secularism only favors the strong, the smart, the attractive, the resourceful. Nature does not favor the weak, the ugly, the slow. You know, in response to why bad things happen, uh, the evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins simply says, if you can't get ahead in life and bad things are happening to you, it's bad luck or bad genes or you're just weak. It's evolution at work. And so the weak and the slow and the unattractive have no place in the secular. And so secularism lived out functionally is also looking for salvation by works. But it only favors the strong and the smart, the beautiful, the resourceful. And so I raise this question because what if you're not strong? What if you're not smart? What if you're not attractive? What if you aren't as resourceful? What if you're weak? What if you're struggling? And the secular answer is to salvation, 
is try harder, work to be smarter, work to be better, be stronger, improve yourself to be more attractive. Secularism is very exclusive because it excludes the weak. Now, religion is actually no different, by the way. Religion is no different because religion also says you can save yourself. Like secularism, every religious worldview, right? Every religious worldview operates on the principle of works. And it privileges only those who can perform. It rewards those able to meet a certain standard in life. Religion says you must be good, you must be more moral, you must keep the law, you must attain a certain level of knowledge or position to find salvation. And so Hinduism says act morally and ethically and repay all your debts to people around you, debts to people around you, pursue the three paths of salvation, duty, knowledge, and devotion to one of the gods, and you can be released from the cycle of rebirth. Buddhism says live the four noble paths. Islam says, keep the five pillars. Judaism says, keep the Torah. Can you see that? Religion always operates on the principle of works. That is your works, your morality, your goodness, your performance, your ability to keep the law. And that means it privileges the strong, the moral, those who are good enough. And again, you know, what if you're not strong? What if you're weak? What if you're not able, if you're not able to do and keep the law, what if you cannot be a good and better person? Religion's answer is, work harder to be good. Work to be more moral. Fix your life. Religion is pretty exclusive as well. And so, I want you to take a step back and realize, especially if you visited this morning, religious people and secular people are not very different. They're both looking for salvation. And functionally, they both operate on the principle of salvation by works. Morality for the religious, self-effort by the secularists. Did you hear that? Morality for the religious, self-effort for the secularists. That's not good news. I think it's bad news. Can I tell you why it's bad news? It's the worst possible news you could hear. It's actually crushing Because we all know as good as you are, as strong as you are, as smart as you are, as beautiful and attractive as you are, as moral as you are, eventually someone's going to outperform you. Someone's going to outsmart you, outdo you, outpower you, outattract you, outgood you. And when that happens, you're excluded. Again, you work so hard to get in, but then you're excluded again. It's not just true in life, it's it's true spiritually as well, isn't it? The principle of works in religion and secularism dictates that you have to be good and maintain that goodness, that attractiveness, that strength. Because eventually, when you can't perform, you're left out in the cold. When you're not as attractive, you're excluded. When you're not as intellectually more capable, you then lose. You you lose out. When you're not morally stronger, uh, what happens is you're excluded. That's bad news. Now, this is what makes Christianity different. The cross of Jesus tells us that the Christian faith operates on the principle of grace, not works. It's all about someone else's work, Jesus' work dying to forgive us. It's all about His good work in dying to save us. And that's why religion and secularism can be summed up in the words do. Their philosophy of life is you must do to save yourself. Christianity is summed up in the words done. It's the only worldview that has that value. It's summed up in the words done because grace says it's been done for you. Jesus, in dying on the cross for your sin, has done it for you. 
He's paid for your sin, your guilt, your failure, your past. In the cr- at the cross, He's absorbed, basically, not just your sin, but the sin of everyone who sinned against you and the sin of the world that has sinned against God. And that's the reason the very last words of Jesus at the cross, you know His last words at the cross from John chapter 19, verse 30? Jesus' last words at the cross is, it is finished. It is finished. It is done. What has Jesus finished? He has finished paying for the sins of the world, your sin and my sin. He has finished absorbing the consequences and the cost of your sin and my sin. In Christianity, God makes no demands that we pay for our own sins or guilt or past. He doesn't say, this is what you must do. This is how you must perform to atone for your guilt. Let me tell you what you must do to be more attractive. No, no, no. He says, Look at what I have done. That's what he says. Look to the cross, and there you will see what I've done for you, what I've done to pay for your sin. Friends, if the way to God had been true morality and religious works, Christianity would have opened the way to salvation only to the moral and the religious, which means only moral people, religious people get saved. But the death of Jesus opens the way for the worst of people, the most immoral, the most unattractive, the weakest, those who are not good. It allows the weakest to be saved. But had the way to God been through strength, power, and wisdom, Christianity would have also opened the way to salvation only to the strong, the elite, the smart, which means only the strong and powerful and only clever people get saved. But the death of Jesus on the cross opens the way for the weakest of people, Those who have no power, no position, no wisdom, they are forgiven and saved. In the death of Jesus on the cross, God, on Good Friday, is actually gifting you forgiveness and salvation because Jesus has done it all for you. He's paid for your sin. It is finished. It's done. Isn't that good news? In your outlines... I've written what Bono writes from his biography. He writes, It's a mind-blowing concept that the God who created the universe might be looking for company, a real relationship with people. Then he writes, At the center of all religions is the idea of karma. He says, If you look at all the world religions, at the center of all world religions is the idea of karma. The idea that you must pay back. The idea that you must earn your way. You know, what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for the tooth, that's karma. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. It's Bono's way of saying, that's how life operates. In every sphere of life, that's how people operate. You must work hard. You must save yourself. You must do. You must be better. He says, I'm absolutely sure of it. And really, that's how the world works. You must perform to be rewarded. You must do to be deserving. That's how the world operates. And then he writes, and yet, Along comes this idea of grace to upend it all, to throw it all up in the air. As you reap, so will you reap stuff. It gets thrown in the air. And then he says, grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. That's between me and God, but I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. I'd be in deep poop. It doesn't excuse my mistakes but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins on the cross because I know who I am 
And I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity, my own works, my own performance, my own attractiveness, my own goodness, my own morality. Why do Christians on Good Friday each year celebrate the death of a man who was beaten, stripped naked, nailed to a cross, humiliated? Why is the hero in the Christian faith a man dying on the cross? Well, it's because the death of Jesus is the answer to Jesus' claim to be God come to forgive sin. He claimed to be God who went to the cross to die for your sin and my sin. And so he's either a liar, a lunatic, or he is who he claims to be. You might not be a Christian. You might admire Jesus. You might like his teachings. You might even recognize him as a great teacher. But if you believe those things to be true, that he is a great teacher, you like his teachings, then you also cannot ignore his claim to be God, come to forgive sin. You've got to work out what you're going to do with that. But the death of Jesus also tells us that unlike religion and secularism, the Christian faith operates on the principle of grace, not works. It's not a call to be a more moral person. It's not a call to make up for your sin and your guilt and your past. It calls people to trust in what Jesus has done for them. That's called grace. The death of Jesus is good news worth celebrating because the death of Jesus makes it possible for us to know forgiveness and it comes to us by grace. So let me end by way of question. Have you personally received it as good news this Good Friday? Have you received the death of Jesus as good news personally for yourself this Good Friday? Is the death of Jesus something you are personally celebrating because you've trusted in His work for you? Friends, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today. And the first step, uh, if you could pull out your order of services, in the, the first step is to recognize that you need His good news. And so we come this Good Friday in a spirit of humility, in a spirit of repentance, and a willingness to confess our sin. What makes Good Friday good? God does not say to any of you in this room, pay for your sin. He does not say, do better. He does not say, fix your life before you come. He doesn't say, try harder. He says, you come and you bring your guilt and your shame and your sin to the cross where Jesus died for your sin. That's all you need to do. Bring it to the cross where He died for it. Let Him pay for it. Let His blood wash away every guilt, every shame, every failure, the hidden past that no one knows about. Bring it to the cross because there He deals with it for you. We are going to pray the prayer of confession together. You'll see it on page 6. Before we do that, let me actually invite you to spend some time uh, in quiet prayer and confession. Bring your sins to the cross. He hears, He receives it, and then we'll pray together the prayer of confession. Let's do that. Church, will you pray with me the prayer of confession? It's a corporate prayer, but let me encourage you to make it yours personally as we pray together. 
We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way. We have sinned, have been the cause of Christ's suffering. Please forgive us, we pray. Remove the sins that distance us from you and from those we love and care about. Remove our selfishness, our pride, our envy, and our greed. Remove from us our thoughtless acts and words that hurt one another. Remove from us the tendency to hurt others out of revenge and anger. Forgive us, please. Create in us a clean heart, O Lord, and renew in us a right spirit. Amen. Friends, when we confess, when we repent, and we bring our shame, our guilt, and our failure to the foot of the cross, something wonderful happens. God actually forgives. Uh, We read in Psalm 125, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. God is not a God who does not want to, uh, who keeps us at a distance. He wants us to come to Him. And when we do that in confession, hear the words of Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is complete forgiveness. That's what happens because of Jesus. His body broken for us, His blood shed for us, completely removes and wipes out our sin. Gives us a fresh start. Friends, we're going to sing before we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Uh, So let's be upstanding.